zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the '80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing Blowout, released July 24th, 1981. It was written and directed by Brian De Palma, with uncredited writing from Bill Macy Jr., and released by Filmways. The original draft of the film was entitled Personal Effects, and was very similar, except that it took place somewhere in Canada instead of Philadelphia. For budget reasons, probably. Yeah. I get it now. Personal effects. Because he does effects. Like effects. But that's also the name of his company in the movie. Oh, is it? Yeah. Oh, I learned something. <laughs> All Welcome to our podcast, Richard. <laughs> De Palma had put the script aside to work on early drafts of Prince of the City with David Rabe, which De Palma planned to direct. When he learned that the producers and studio had reached out to Sidney Lumet to direct, he dropped the script, which was ultimately credited to Jay Press on Allen and returned to Blowout. Like our recent title, Escape from New York, the germ of this film story came from the aftermath of the Watergate scandal and a growing public distrust of government, but reached back to earlier conspiracies like the Kennedy assassination, which De Palma had tackled more directly in his 1968 film Greetings. It also mixed in details from a fresher Kennedy scandal, specifically the Chappaquiddick incident, which cost the life of young Mary Jo Kopechny and derailed Senator Ted Kennedy's presidential aspirations. That was the real tragedy was that Ted Kennedy couldn't be president after he <laughs> killed that poor girl. I didn't feel like this felt particularly government-related. I mean, I understand that it's, like, related to the it's election. It's being perpetuated by the government. I don't think that that's clear. Yeah, I, 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 I'm I, with Jesse on this I, one. I mean, I think, that, I think that somebody's trying to kill a government official, or yeah. did kill, but I'm just... Spoiler, sorry. But um, I don't think that... That's, I, I think don't it's think, heavily I don't think, implied that the government is responsible for what happens. I don't think so. It's actually one of my complaints about the movie is I don't think that they really... Hit that hard enough they, they explaining don't, they who don't, it is. They don't, yeah, the conspiracy itself is really almost secondary. Yeah. De Palma partnered with Take One, a film magazine, and in their January 1979 issue, they ran a contest called the Write a Screenplay for Brian De Palma Contest, <laughs> which basically ran a full scene-by-scene outline of the film and invited contestants to pick two scenes at random to adapt into a screenplay format. The lucky winner of Take One's contest was aspiring screenwriter Bill Macy Jr., fresh out of film school. Sadly, the magazine had folded before the contest ended, so he never got to see his name printed as the contest winner, but he did receive a single phone call from De Palma himself as congratulations. Sadly, he wasn't home, and Macy's mother had to take the message for him. Aww. He would not get a second phone call. <laughs> he never <laughs> spoke to De Palma himself. Other associates of De Palma's paid him to adapt the full outline into a script. Over time, he was informed that the script had been dropped from consideration until he saw a blowout and recognized the story, though Macy admits that very little, if any, of his contribution was included in the final product. Hmm. With a $9 million budget, this was expensive for a De Palma release, and Filmway spent an additional $9 million on just marketing. The new title, Blowout, obviously serves as a reference to Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up, which told a very similar story from the perspective of a photographer 
who accidentally captures evidence of a murder. Blowout closed its theatrical release with a take of 14 million, representing a net loss of 4 million. Now, I always thought that they were like it was a direct sort of sequel or no, adaptation, but it's They really... are very similar in plot and structure, but calling it Blowout was an afterthought. Right, but like they didn't get rights to the concept or Correct. anything like that. So it's they're really not related technically. No, but they are very very similar and it's it's really kind of a cross between Blow Up and The Conversation, which had come out in 74. Um, it because it borrows elements from both stories, but it's it's a lot closer to Blow Up yeah. than any other movie really of his time. The failure of this film did significant damage to Travolta's career, and he didn't fully recover until Tarantino cast him in Pulp Fiction in the early 90s. It, this film was a failure. Yeah, it it was. I mean, it was critically adored, but it did not make its money back. Wow. And Travolta did a lot of not great stuff for the rest of the 80s. That's so weird. It, it is weird. I, not only did I really like this movie, but I was like, oh, well, not only is it a good movie, but like, it's got John Travolta in it. Right. So mm -hmm. of course it, it was have successful, been huge. right? right. <laughs> yeah. We start with the sound of a heartbeat over the Filmways logo. Then we cut into what looks like the third act of a horror film. We're in a killer's POV and we hear wind blowing and a snarling sound. The picture is letterboxed and pillarboxed which is the first hint that it is not reality. Yeah. The killer sneaks around a house where a police officer is peeking through the windows of a dormitory at girls in various states of undress. Apparently, they don't even notice the cop outside because the killer walks up with a knife raised and stabs the cop repeatedly in the back, eliciting no response from the girls inside. The POV moves up against the glass to look in on the dancing girls and their room glows red. The person operating the camera here is Steadicam inventor Garrett Brown, who did the same job on Kubrick's The Shining last season. A roommate from the next room over busts in to complain about the noise because she's having trouble studying. I was really confused by what she was saying. She goes, because she kept saying, I'm going to sue. I'm going to sue. Yeah. And I was like, I don't know if you can sue for this. Yeah. <laughs> but she's going to get sue. Yeah. I think that's a bad choice of names. Yeah. When her roommate refuses to turn down the music, she threatens to go to sue, presumably their RA, with her complaint. They call her bluff and she leaves. The POV moves to another window of the house and finds a couple having sex on the floor until the girl seems to notice the observer and screams. She gets up close to the window trying to point out the peeping Tom to her boyfriend. We cut inside the dormitory hallway. Whenever girls walk down the hall, the killer's POV ducks into a doorframe or something and the nerdy homework girl returns with the RA, Sue, to file a formal complaint. The POV turns to a nearby door to the showers. The killer backs up to make room for three girls coming out of the showers and then stumbles upon another girl just masturbating in a room, apparently paying no attention to her surroundings. Or maybe she is. Oh. She, it seemed like the door was open and no, he's just yeah. looking through it. That, yeah. But that's what I'm saying. Maybe she likes that. Maybe. <laughs> it's really impossible that nobody's seeing this killer because he seems right in everyone's eye line so far. He returns to the shower door and the bathroom is all steamy. He stops to observe himself in a bathroom mirror it's a heavy-set older guy in a tracksuit with glasses, and he holds a knife up with a gloved hand. Behind him in a mirror, we can see a girl showering with the curtain wide open. Or so I thought. But then the gloved hand reaches up to sweep the curtain to the left, so it was closed but just completely transparent. <laughs> right, which doesn't that kind of defeat the I, whole I would idea? think so, yeah. And it also seems to be like four times as long as the pole that it's hanging from. Well, I mean, I get the idea of having a clear 
shower curtain in general just yeah. because you want light in there and like it keeps the water in but like in the case of this movie wouldn't yes. you want to block her view of the you would killer? think <laughs> but then you would have less boobs in the frame that's right true yeah somehow the showering girl doesn't hear the curtain being dragged aside and notices the madman with the knife too late to do anything besides let out an awkward scream <laughs> god the scream is terrible we cut to a screening room where John Travolta as Jack Terry laughs out loud at the terrible scream. The director asks the guy operating the mix board to rewind it. And kill all the effects except for the scream. Kill it. You're right. It's hers. And it's shit. The director and Jack discuss the films they've worked on in the past. Bloodbath and Bloodbath 2. According to IMDb, there are four bloodbaths. One released in 66, one in 71, better known as A Bay of Blood, which we'll come back to later, and two in 75, but none got sequels. Another one of their collaborations is called Bad Day at Blood Beach, which obviously reminded me of Blood Beach, which we reviewed <laughs> earlier this season, and whose poster is featured in this film as a release of this production company. Are, are they implying that Bad Day at Blood Beach is Blood Beach? I think so, because the Blood Beach poster is in the movie. Mm -hmm. That might have been a, a working title, according to these characters. Mm. The last one he mentions is Bordello of Blood, which would of course go on to be the title of the second Tales from the Crypt film. Amazingly, the script for Bordello of Blood was written by Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale in the 70s, and Blowout was probably referencing that unproduced screenplay. Do you think so? Would he have known about that? Yeah. He did know about it. Oh, okay. But that film wouldn't hit theaters until 15 years later. I was looking into that series recently because I remembered loving the Tales from the Crypt movie Demon Knight. That was the first one. But I never saw Bordello of Blood. Apparently, it was originally intended to be a trilogy, but the producers kept kicking back every script submitted for the final film of the series. Among the scripts considered for the third slot were From Dusk Till Dawn and The Frighteners, which obviously found their way to theaters without the Tales from the Crypt brand. But the 2002 film Ritual is considered by most to be the third and final Tales from the Crypt film. Apparently, it was released in theaters, kind of like Up the Academy with all the Tales from the Crypt references stripped out of the film. But the DVD release includes an introduction from the Crypt Keeper, like the previous films in the series. Oh, interesting. But the Tales from the Crypt things, they're, they're like anthology movies, right? No, the, the theatrical releases were full stories, mm -hmm. like 90-minute stories. Oh, okay. For some reason, I thought they were, I thought it was like Creep Show. Where no, like well, that's collection. what the, the TV show was like. Oh, okay. Yeah. Back to Blowout. The film Jack and his director are working on now is called Coed Frenzy, probably because Coed Psycho was too obvious of a Hitchcock reference, so they switched to a less celebrated Hitchcock title. <laughs> other, other options were Coed Vertigo yeah. and Coed the Birds. And Coed North by Northwest. I love it. Because <laughs> of the college, I get it. Northwest. Northwestern. Northwestern. North by Northwestern. <laughs> the director asks Jack to get a new scream recorded and also to replace some of the other stock effects that he feels like they've overused in their five films over the last two years. We get a sort of animated title sequence with the pointer of a volume meter swinging into frame and wiping a name across the screen. We hear a much more convincing scream, which will come back later, and we hear a gunshot and screeching tires as the words blow and out appear from either side of the screen and crash into each other. Back in his equipment room, Jack dubs a recording of thunder and flicks on the television. 
and Anchorman outlines the governor's chances in an upcoming presidential primary. If an election were held today, the poll concludes Governor McBride would be the hands-down winner, drawing a remarkable 62% of the vote, with the president's 23. A member of the president's staff, Jack Manners, insists a lot can change between now and the election, which I felt like was the first Ominous. hint that someone's going to do something about <laughs> mm -hmm. this. Jack rises to stop the thunder tape, and we get a classic De Palma split diopter, with the TV on the right and Jack on the left across the room. Jack pops the Thunder soundtrack back into its box and picks up a spool of footsteps. Now we switch to a straight-up split screen with the news broadcast on the right and tight inserts of Jack's machines on the left as he prepares to dub another tape. An anchorwoman introduces an upcoming Liberty Day event, celebrating a century since the last ringing of the famous Liberty Bell. They aren't ringing it again or anything, but there's going to be a parade, and they also collected enough pennies from local elementary schools to melt into a replica Liberty Bell. That seems like it's still a lot of pennies. Yeah, it seems like a like, lot. Also, isn't that like a federal crime? <laughs> <laughs> to destroy money? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Also, why not just ring the Liberty Bell? Because it's cracked. Because it's cracked. You don't want to break it even more, Richard. I don't think it would hurt it. Looking it up, though, the bell was last rung on February 22nd, 1846, to celebrate Washington's birthday, which is when the largest crack appeared. So unless this movie takes place in the 40s, they're making up a lot. The TV broadcast cuts to a live report from the Liberty Ball, where Governor McRyan is expected to make an announcement tonight. Just give it a tap. It doesn't need to be it's like gonna a full... It's going to crack in half, Richard. It doesn't need to be a full ring. Leave the Liberty Dude, Bell just alone. Just tap a tap a tap a. Get like, like one of those little rubber mallet kind of things. You That's know? probably what they hit it with a hundred and some years ago. Why not just melt a lot of pennies and make a new one? <laughs> Jack continues dubbing various sound effects on the left while we watch footage from the ball on the right. The second we see McRyan in frame on the right, we hear a gunshot being dubbed on the left. The governor went on to say, Joan, he felt it a shame. The Liberty Bell had been silenced for so long that he was looking forward to hearing a new voice of liberty throughout the land. We see Jack collect his recording equipment, flick off the TV, and step out the door, which is labeled with the words Personal Effects, the original title of the film. And that's the name of Travolta's company that he runs out of this office mm -hmm. we cut to a microphone at night near a river as wind tosses the trees around we follow the microphone down to jack's arm and we see him hit record on his nagra reel-to-reel i really love the way this movie is shot it's beautiful mm -hmm. like it's just amazing it's I think so well lit too on top of being beautifully framed it's wonderfully framed it's beautifully lit it's and i mean it it, it has a very hitchcockian essence like most De Palma films. Right, yeah. But um, like especially these scenes out here when he's recording, I just really love the mic sh like pointing straight at camera and then like tilting slightly. Like it's just it's just beautiful. Yeah, and I really like the all the mechanical inserts of him like switching the tapes out and stuff yeah. like that. Well, but I, it feels very precise and and thought out. I, yeah, I really agree with that because I feel like there's there's some De Palma films where it feels a little cheesy when he does some of these um effects you know like like the split screens and things like that but yeah. I, like i feel it's seamless in this movie yeah I it's all warranted i have no problem with any of his uh style in this and movie. you're getting information from both sides of the frame the mm -hmm. whole time too as he swipes his microphone through the air he intercepts a private conversation between a man and woman on a footbridge below somehow jack is well lit enough that the woman betsy notices him and points him out to her date who doesn't seem concerned even though it looks a lot like Jack is pointing a gun at them, considering yeah. the shape of this microphone. Swiping the microphone around again, he finds a rhythmic clicking sound, and suddenly we see a frog in the bottom corner of picture 
turning and jumping into the water. And next comes my favorite sound detail in the entire film. He continues searching for noises and finds a weird zipping and clicking sound. He records it for a bit, but we don't see an insert of what's making this noise. Next, Jack captures an owl hooting and we get another split screen moment with the owl. Lastly, he records a passing car on a nearby bridge when suddenly a loud pop sound can be heard and the driver loses control of the vehicle, which crashes through the guardrail and into the river below. Jesus Christ. The water wasn't deep enough to swallow a car, so the production had to dam this creek up for seven days to make it deep enough for the car to disappear under. The underwater stuff with the car was shot in a tank in California, and Nancy Allen was claustrophobic, so she had a very difficult time with all the underwater footage. I can imagine. Yeah. Jack makes a run for it to rescue whoever's in the car from drowning. As he runs down the rocks to the water, we notice another man standing under the bridge, surprised by Jack's presence, and sneaking back up to the road. The car disappears below the surface of the water just as Jack reaches it. And this doesn't make much sense to me either. I agree. Given what we'll know about this person who's running away. Whoever it was. It could be one of two people. Yeah. And neither one of them would have been under this bridge when yeah. this happened. Mm-hmm. The man he crossed paths with before is now running frantically across the bridge. From inside the car, we see a female passenger pounding on the windows to beg for help from the swimming man. Jack notices the other passenger is already dead and quickly grabs a rock from the bottom of the river to bash at the car's windows. After several tries, he busts the window in and drags the female passenger through the frame and out of the water. We cut to a hospital sometime later, and the lobby is crowded with press and police. A detective interrogates Jack about what happened, and is weirdly confrontational about his story. Jack claims to have heard a bang before the car's tire popped. Well, you heard the blow-up. Yes, I heard the blow-up, but the first sound I heard was a bang. That's a kind of an echo. No, <laughs> look, I know what an echo sounds like. I'm a sound man, and... Uh, the bang was before the blowout. What All were right. you doing up there? I was recording sounds for a movie I'm working on. You recorded the accident? Yes. The man is interested to hear that Jack has a recording of the crash. The cop seems not to believe him when Jack explains about the girl he rescued from the vehicle. Jack is merely amused at this detective's apparent ignorance. There was a girl? Yes, there was a girl. What girl? The girl that I brought here, the girl in the room. She was inside the car? Yes. Are you sure? I wasn't bobbing for apples, of course I'm sure. After questioning, Jack checks with the doctor to see if he can speak with the girl he saved. The doctor says that she will recover, but she's sedated and might not talk much. When Jack finds her behind a curtain in her room, she seems very confused about where she is and tries to leave. The girl is being played by Nancy Allen, and Jack urges her to stay put until the doctors give her an all clear. He makes a comment about how pretty she is, and she covers her face embarrassed because she's not wearing any makeup. As Jack prepares to leave, he asks her on a date sometime in the future. What do you say when you get out of here? We have a drink sometime, huh? And a glass. The girl, Sally, wants to leave right now, and eventually Jack agrees to help find her clothes and take her home if they'll allow it. Back in the hospital lobby, Jack is surprised by the cacophony of voices. He sees the other passenger from the accident rolled in on a gurney, certainly dead. He overhears his own name as the cop who interrogated him reports the information to another law enforcement official. We get another cool split diopter shot when Terry hears his own name and is summoned to speak with a man in a three-piece suit. While the cops secure a room for them to chat in, Jack is informed that the dead man is in fact Governor McRyan. That stiff on the stretcher was probably our next president. 
Elliot, my vote. Jack is moved into a room with a representative of McRyan's campaign, who asks Jack to please refrain from telling people about the girl in the governor's car. The man introduces himself as Lawrence Henry, a friend of the deceased, and he stresses that it would only embarrass McRyan's family for word of this girl to be reported, even mentioning that he has already spoken with the police who have agreed to keep her name out of the reports. I just don't know if I can do that. I mean, I was there, she was there, and... Who gives a damn that you were there? You want to tell his wife that he died with his hand up some girl's dress? Or maybe you'd rather she read it in the papers. Well, that is what happened. I mean, that is the truth, isn't it? What difference does that make to you? Eventually, Jack seems to relent and accept the man's terms, and we cut to him driving away with Sally in his passenger seat. They both worry that their homes may be swarmed with press after tonight's accident and agree to head to a motel together. The motel they end up at has a neon sign with a Liberty Bell on it to go along with the Liberty Ball that the governor was leaving when he met his end. We see the bell reflected in the window of the room and later on the windows of Jack's car as he collects his recording equipment out of the back. He sits in the hotel room and replays the tape of the accident to himself, waving around a pencil as though it were his microphone that night. And he does this with the windows wide open. Yeah. And I was like... Isn't he wearing headphones though? Yeah, yeah, but that's not the issue. My, my issue is... Who gets a motel room and leaves the curtains wide open at night while you're sitting in there? Yeah, that's weird. Like, especially on the ground floor room. Like, maybe if you were on a second floor room, maybe. But it just seemed odd to me that he's so worried about people finding them and... I don't think he's worried about any violence, though. And he mm-hmm. doesn't expect that anyone knows about this motel. He's just here because he doesn't want to be at home right now. As Jack listens to the recording, we see the trees rustling. We hear the paranoid couple again the frog, the mysterious zipping and clicking, and the owl. This time we're seeing most of the same events from Jack's POV. We hear the car approaching again and a loud bang before it swerves off the bridge. He rewinds the tape back and forth to listen to the banging sound repeatedly. We get another really cool composite shot with Travolta's face rotoscoped on the left and the background plate is a close-up slow-mo insert of the car tire rolling down the street when the front driver's side tire is shot out and we see a flash on the hillside behind the car, implying that the bullet passed through the tire before the air was completely let out of it. We cut to a city street at night, and we hear the same zipping sound as the camera descends on a parked car. A man inside steps out to unload his trunk and retrieve a car tire. We get a little insert of uh, foreshadowing as well from this trunk, because the thing he, one of the things he tosses out of the way to get to the tire is a box that says, like a uh, uh, recording eraser. Oh, interesting. Okay. Oh, I didn't notice that. I didn't that. notice that either. Dressed in all black, he moves through the doorway of a mechanic shop and rolls the tire in. He sneaks in and finds McRyan's car on a lift. He pokes his fingers into the entry and exit wounds of the tire, and a music sting indicates that Jack was right, and the tire was shot out. The man puts on gloves and swaps out the shot tire for a normal flat. The next morning, Sally wakes Jack in their hotel room, And it seems like there are two beds in this room, which was gentlemanly of Jack, but he also didn't sleep in either bed because he passed out listening to the recordings. He tells Sally that he works as a sound recordist for low-budget movies. Sally mentions that she works at a makeup counter, but that she'd like to do makeup for the movies eventually. Jack shares his theory that the tire was shot out and offers to play a recording of the accident. When Jack asks why she was with the governor that night, she gets uncomfortable and tries to leave. He reminds her that he saved her life last night and guilts her into some contact info. She'll be staying with her friend Judy Demings, who is apparently in the phone book. We cut to the offices of Independence Pictures Incorporated, or IPI, 
upstairs from a porno theater. In the window, we see a smaller sign advertising Jack's freelance sound company, Personal Effects. A co-worker, Sam, I think this is the director of the film, busts into Jack's office to turn on the news because apparently, in addition to a man accidentally recording the accident on audio tape, another man <laughs> just happened to be filming and captured the accident on film. Yeah. Incredible as it may seem, a local photographer, Manny Carp, was on the scene of the accident last night with his camera. We get a short interview segment with Mr. Carp, as played by Dennis Franz, who explains that he was testing some high-speed film and heard the car coming and just got lucky with his camera. Are we assuming that this is a, like, 16 millimeter camera? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, it is. Okay. Because I, I, I kept saying camera instead of like, you know, I know obviously a, a, a motion picture film camera is a camera, but right. it, it, I kept, th- in my mind, I kept picturing stills, like still camera. No, it, it was a movie camera. And at first I thought, spoiler alert, maybe that that's what the clicking sound was. Oh, okay. It was like, like of the, oh, that of makes the sense. Yeah. advancing the film. When asked if the governor was alone, Carp claims that he didn't see anyone. It's weird that they're asking this question already unless the rumor is out that there was a girl in the vehicle. Right. Jack considers the answer suspicious since so many people told him to lie about the accident. Jack leaves his office in a hurry, rushing past a poster for Uli Lommel's The Boogeyman, which we covered last season. Jack rushes down to the closest newsstand to buy a magazine with the photos from McRyan's accident. So what they've done basically is print page after page of every frame of this yeah. film. Okay. They wouldn't actually do this, I don't right? think so either. I mean, like, I get that I, this I is... think they may have done it for the Zapruder film, which might be what they're emulating here. Maybe. I'm just saying, like, I get that it's pre-internet and you can't, like, you know, post a, a film for people to watch. But posting every frame of a, of a movie in a magazine instead mm-hmm. seems weird like i think their intention was to shut down any development of conspiracy theories to be like look here's the whole accident in full we have every frame of it so you can tell that nothing weird happened when jack re-enters the offices of ipi we can see posters for something called the other side of julie a 1978 adult film about a gigolo with a client who turns out to be an in-law another poster for the boogeyman which we covered in vintage video episode 141 Food of the Gods, a 1976 horror adaptation of an H.G. Wells story about friends on an island hunting trip who encounter giant mutated animals. Hmm. And lastly, Squirm, a 1976 horror title about a town under attack from a swarm of man-eating worms, all of which have IPI logos on their posters. Do Uh, worms swarm? They do when a downed power line electrocutes the ground and they all come Mm. up at the same time. Okay, I don't know, I just... I saw that in the Godzilla movie. (laughs) (laughs) I double-checked the posters for these real movies to verify that there is no such IPI logo on them, just to make sure. Yeah. This logo was just added to existing posters. But they must have gotten the rights to do that. I'm sure, yeah. There's also a tall film strip frame for a bunch of animation cells, but I couldn't tell the title of the film because the words are just barely too small. It looks like it says Sea Ranch Club, but that's the closest I can guess, and Google turns up nothing. I guess I'll have to see this in theaters the next chance I get. <laughs> Whatever it is, it looks weirdly like Alice in Wonderland because oh, there's a girl with... Oh, you meant see this movie as in Blowout. Yes. I, I, I thought you meant Sea Ranch Club. I got to have yes. to see that one. <laughs> For sure, you need to check out Sea Ranch Club. <laughs> Whatever Sea Ranch Club is, it looks weirdly like Alice in Wonderland because there's a girl with long blonde hair talking to a rabbit in a blue coat, 
But the last animation cell is her gesturing to a big rainbow over a waterfall. So if this sounds familiar to anybody, Tell please us let what us it, know. Yeah, what it's actually called. <laughs> the IPI receptionist reminds Jack that he's late for an audition of new screamers. As he moves down the hall, Jack passes a poster for The Incredible Melting Man, William Sachs' 1977 horror sci-fi about an astronaut mutated into a gelatinous murdering monster. I just saw a thing about this movie not too long ago. <laughs> The titular Melting Man is played by Alex Rebar, who thus far on the show has produced Tuala Good Night, Demented, Home Sweet Home, and Terror on Tour, which all four have dedicated vintage video episodes. The next poster is for Island of the Damned, better known as Who Can Kill a Child, a 1976 horror film about an island of murderous children. Next poster is Fantasex, a 1976 adult film about the sex-obsessed employees of a pornographer who turn violently on their employer. And finally, a poster for Graydon Clark's Without Warning, which we covered in Vintage Video episode 116, all of which have been stamped with an artificial IPI logo. Jack moves into a door labeled Animation and closes it behind him. He sits in the dark room and looks at the photographs of the accident while the director of Coed Frenzy tries to coax him to the screaming audition from behind a locked door. The magazine has published what looks like every frame of the car veering off the road and falling into the water, Jack starts cutting out the pictures and building a flipbook of the frames. Using the animation department's downshooter, he captures each individual frame onto some film stock to create a clip of the accident. He tucks the film into a small can, and we cut to the director's office where he is addressing three women on a couch. Well, yeah, he tucks it into a small can. But, but first for he takes it out yeah, in the well-lit room. He takes it out. I was like, no, <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah, I, I got the impression that we were seeing more than he actually could. That this is a dark room, and the only reason yeah. we can tell what's happening is because, it, so that we know what he did in it, there. You mean you, you, a dark room, not a photography dark room? Right, but I just mean, I think this animation room was supposed to look pitch black okay. in, in the room, but we were given some light to see what he did. Jack tucks the film into a small can, and we cut to the director's office, where he's addressing three women on his couch. Behind them are two posters, one for Lure of the Triangle, which is like, a schooner sinking into a bikini of a, of a woman. Okay. Uh, it's the fakest looking and most obscure title of the bunch, but it's real. It's another X-rated title from the same Gale Film distributors that released Fantasex. And the other poster is for Empire of the Ants, about a woman selling real estate in a territory overrun with enormous ants. I want to see all of these. <laughs> yeah. I, <was laughs> I kind of want to see the giant ant one. Yeah. Just, it's like, you're going to love this nice little, like, starter home. Yeah. It's just like giant ants. The pictures on IMDb are ridiculous, too. <laughs> when Jack wanders past his office door, the director makes each of his girls scream one time, but Jack is unimpressed. <coughs> what do you think? Keep looking. Keep looking? We cut to another theater across town, and the marquee is playing 1979's Savage Weekend a slasher about several couples being hunted down by a serial killer in a mask. A truck labeled Philadelphia Film Processing is unloading cans onto a dolly as Jack skids up in his Jeep. He begs the place to process his short ends despite their packed schedule. We cut to a payphone as Jack calls Sally to invite her for the long-promised drink. She tells him she's headed to a train station, and he offers to meet her there. She agrees to a quick drink, ten minutes, otherwise she'll miss her train. At the train station, we see posters for theatrical productions of Peter Pan, Sweeney Todd, A Chorus Line, and Mornings at Seven. They pop into a bar, and then we dissolve to some time later. It seems like both have had a couple drinks, 
and they're leaning into each other to chat across the table in a booth. She's telling him the importance of good makeup, and Jack says she looks fine without it, but she tells him she spent hours today on the no makeup look. You got makeup on now? I do. I don't believe it. I don't believe it. Absolutely. I think he's joking with her here, though, because she clearly has eyeshadow on at the very least. Well, yeah, but I gotta say that most guys have no idea when women are wearing makeup or For sure, makeup. that's true. They most often think they aren't when they absolutely are. <laughs> Eventually, she realizes that he distracted her with a chat so that she would miss her train. She starts to ask him how he got started at his job. He tells her he was a very techy kid, and he refined those skills working in communications for the army. Then he worked undercover with the police for a while. He says he worked for the King Commission, which seems to be inspired by the Chase Commission from Robert Daly's novel, Prince of the City, which, as I mentioned before, De Palma was working on adapting just prior to this film. Well, what's that? This is a group of politicians that got together to try to stop police corruption. She asks why he left that job, and he reluctantly goes into the story, which we see in a flashback. He works with the top undercover cop named Freddy Corso, they were on a case together to catch a police captain charging protection to some mob folks. They taped a mic and transmitter to Corso and sent him on the case. When Corso meets with the guys, the audio is coming through loud and clear. They should have a clear line as long as they stay within a few blocks. Unfortunately, they're suddenly static on the track, and even though they're staying within range, Jack determines that Corso is sweating so much that the batteries in his transmitter are shorting. Corso asks them to pull over so he can take a piss, and Jack starts freaking out because it was his oversight that's zapping this guy now. Jack thinks that he has to move quick because the battery is scarring the undercover agent, and the other guy in Jack's car tells him that he might get the guy killed by following. Jack ignores the man and rushes into the bathroom to find Corso hung from the bathroom doorframe by his own microphone. This whole section of the movie is also lifted from Prince of the City, and Sidney Lumet's adaptation of the novel hit theaters a month after this film, so we'll get to that one soon. Do you really think that uh, you could hang yourself from a, well, or be hung from a microphone wire? Probably not, especially not this guy. He looked like a little bit heavier guy. I mean, I'm assuming they used a very thin wire since he's being... Covert? Yeah. Yeah, because yeah, it's yeah, it's supposed to be one of, it's like a wire wire, mm -hmm. like a hidden yeah. wire. So I'm surprised that it worked. I'm also surprised that the guy who went into the bathroom after him was able to overpower him because the guy yeah. who killed him was... A much heavier set guy. Yeah. But. And not, not only overpower him, but lift him up. Lift, yeah. And hang him from the yeah. bathroom frame. Yeah, See, that's, that's the part that I think. I think maybe a wire could hold your weight, but then the hoisting part, like, I think that's... Or logistically getting the wire up there. And he does it so quickly. It's just not... Unless the guy was cooperating. He's like, you're right. I feel terrible about it. Here, I'll, <laughs> I'll lean up on the toilet and you wrap it up and then I'll just jump down. Back in the bar, Sally tries to assure Jack that Freddy Corso's death was not his fault. He pleads with Sally to stay in town against Lawrence Henry's wishes to see the evidence that Jack has put together. Eventually, she agrees to at least think about it. I'm not sure why he wants her to stay in town other than to just feel less crazy because at least one other person knows what happened. We cut to a mall where the man who switched the tires stands on the top floor with a photograph of Sally and watches people descending an escalator. He finally notices a girl who looks a lot like Sally and starts following her through the mall. He follows her through a fish market where he snatches up an ice pick from one of the freezers as he passes. I don't even know if we're supposed to tell at this point that it's not Sally. I thought it was. I did too. <laughs> I, I, I was like, oh no, like this guy's after Sally. Yeah. Just before she can get onto a bus outside, 
He grabs her from behind and drags her through an opening in a fence with a wire around her neck. Apparently the bus driver's like, oh, I guess she's all good then. Yeah. <laughs> he just pulls away. <laughs> they both roll down a hill together into a construction site, and at the bottom, the killer finally pulls back his hood to reveal he's being played by John Lithgow. Ooh. <laughs> the girl has stopped moving, presumably dead, and Lithgow, or Burke, as we'll come to know him, rolls the body over to reveal to us that she is not Sally at all, just a similar-looking girl. See, at this point, I thought... He was going to be disappointed. That he, Yeah, that he that he made a mistake and he didn't right. realize it. And I think we're supposed to think that. But then when he flips her over and we reveal, first of all, that it's not Sally, and then the second reveal here is that he doesn't give a shit that it's not Sally. He turns his head to see a billboard for the upcoming Liberty Day Jubilee and is inspired. He rips open her shirt and pulls out the ice pick to stab her repeatedly in the torso. The camera floats away to find Sally walking down a nearby sidewalk just to hammer home that this was not her that we just saw killed. Mm -hmm. She stops and enters a building and the camera cranes up the side of it to reveal Manny Carp looking down from one of the higher windows. Inside his apartment, we see him put a movie on and rehearse not expecting Sally to stop by. The specific movie he puts on is actually De Palma's first feature, Murder a la Mode, from 1968. The script called for Francis Coppola's Dementia 13 to play on the TV, but producer Roger Corman asked a ridiculous sum for the rights to the footage because of course he did. <laughs> Sitting on top of the television is a projector loaded with 16 millimeter film stock. Manny lets Sally in and immediately she wants to know what happened that night. Carp says that he would have saved her, but he saw the other guy pull her out of the water, so he left. He also admits here that he can't even swim. Yeah. But your name's Carp, dude. <laughs> Maybe he's like Magic Carp. <laughs> he just flops around his magic sure. can't swim either that's the whole problem we cut back to the offices of personal effects where jack has just gotten back with the processed reel he pops it into a projector and the footage is surprisingly smooth considering how sloppily jack cut out all the frames from the magazine next he attaches his own recording from that night and syncs up the splash to the splash on the film reel then he rewinds from the splash to the bang in his own recording and he sees a flash on the side of the road consistent with his theory that the tire was shot out. Couple problems, though. Assuming Carp knew about the plan to shoot out the tire, why wouldn't he remove these incriminating frames from the film strip that he went public with? Because I don't think he did know. It seems later like he did. And he also doesn't give a shit. Jack tapes together the sound and picture reels for safekeeping and then tucks them up above a ceiling tile. Weirdly, we watch him do this from the POV of a person outside on the street below, but it turns out nobody saw him do this. It's just De Palma <laughs> trying to freak us out. Yeah, yeah. I thought for sure someone had was watching him do this this yeah. whole time. Also, for his animation, did he just have to like double and triple and quadruple a bunch of the frames in order to get like the sound to sync up at the frame rate? No, they were both 24 frames a second. So he, he cut out all 24 frames a second? Of, yes. Of? Okay. Yeah. I, cause, I mean, because that's... I mean, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, the implication yeah, is that I'm he saying. was just filming 24 frames a second yeah. with his camera. It, it, but it, it, it's weird that they printed every frame is what you're right. saying. Right, Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought for sure that he had only collected it, enough frames. Right, the, the select images, the most important ones. Mm -hmm. you yeah. Know? But no, every frame, which is weird. The next day, we see Jack head into a local police station with the important frames from Carp's pictures and his own recording. Of course, the cops don't believe him. Listen, why the fuck does everything have to be a conspiracy, huh? A man has a couple of too many drinks, he drives off the road, falls into a creek. 
Accident. Plain and simple. It's accident. It's not an accident. Look, let me tell you something. I was there. That tire was shot out. I heard it. I recorded it. So you're an ear witness to an assassination. That's good. It's got a nice ring. I like that. The cop accidentally admits that he's one of the bad guys when he reveals that he's familiar with Jack's reputation. I know all about you and your fucking tapes. You put a lot of good cops away. Meaning that he was a fan of the corrupt police officers that were caught in the King Commission's undercover operations. Jack stupidly leaves the tape with this cop, who is obviously trying to sweep everything under the rug. Jack says if they can get the original film from Carp, that the evidence will be even more damning. The cop says he doesn't know where Carp is, and he's too lazy to find him. He refuses to demand Carp turn over his evidence, and yet when Jack tries to take his own evidence back and leave with it, the cop claims that he'll have Jack arrested if he doesn't turn it in. The guy clearly just wants all the controversial stuff under wraps. We cut to Burke in a phone booth wearing a hard hat with a Liberty Bell on it. The voice on the phone tells him that he was just supposed to take pictures. Depending on who that person was under the bridge, which could only be Carp. I mean, it could be Lithgow, too. Well, it, it couldn't be Carp because the footage that he got is really far away, unless it, he wasn't manning the camera. But it couldn't be Lithgow because the shot came from the hill, and there's no way he... Right, that's what I'm saying. Neither, so both of them are shooting yeah. a camera and a gun <laughs> from the wrong side right. to be the person under the bridge. Yeah. Unless he set up a camera and then went under the bridge and hit record remotely. Yeah. But then but then he would be on film. Yeah, and that's the thing too. This person should be on the film as well. Oh, for sure, yeah. If it's long enough, yeah. We cut to Jack walking through the bridal district downtown and entering a store called Bluebird Bridal Shop. Inside, we see an ad for carp photos, weddings, and portraits. When Jack pushes his way in, he finds a police officer sitting in a chair. The cop tells him that reporters have been in all day posing as customers of carps and trying to get a hold of the McRyan photos. The cop hands him a photo of someone who came in today claiming to be a customer. The photo is of a man in bed with Sally at the same hotel where she and Jack spent the night. Jack finally realizes that Sally and Manny have been running this blackmail scam for a while. We cut back to another phone booth where we see the man Burke is talking to. You were supposed to get some pictures of McRyan, not kill him. I understood the objectives of the operation. I never concurred with them. But I didn't kill him. It was an accident. You accidentally shot out the tire of his car? As you may recall, this was my initial plan as proposed in our meeting of June the 6th. We rejected that plan. Don't you remember? Of course, I do admit I had to exceed the parameters of my authority somewhat, but I always stayed within an acceptable margin of error. After all, the objective was achieved. He was eliminated from the election. The man tries to hang up on Burke, claiming never to have met him, but Burke shares some loose ends that still need trimming. He says he's already swapped out the tire, and he erased Jack's audio tape of the incident. Next, he plans to kill Carp and Sally and make it look like a string of local sex killings. We cut that, back. That, that presumably he's committing. Right. In order and to that's set when we up. realize he killed that other girl on purpose because right. she is the first victim in a series of victims that will lead to Sally, or probably even past Sally. Sure. Just to be you know especially sociopathic about it <laughs> we cut back to the screening room where the director is coaching two voice actresses through a dubbing session and they are both worthless <laughs> when jack pops in for a second the director goes off on him for being out of reach lately jack sneaks back to his office to listen to some tapes but they're blank he tries more and it sounds like they're all blank there's really only one way that burke could have destroyed all these tapes in a timely manner and it would have involved walking around the room with a heavy duty degausser which i guess is right. what you saw in the trunk. Right. It reminded me of a, I kind of just mentally pictured the scene in Fight Club. Yeah. Where they're going into the blockbuster. The, yeah. The, <laughs> the whole row of VHS tapes. <laughs> in theory, he's either got a wand or he's got 
like one of those giant, huge, like death mm-hmm. degaussing machines, like yeah. a big, you know, a big thing. So I feel like if he's trying to sneak into this guy's office, he's not bringing this giant deck in and he's got a wand. Probably. And those things you have to literally put, be right next put to on right. the physical tape. Yeah. So it's all right. Yeah, it just would have taken for freaking ever. Yeah, I would think you'd have to be in there for hours to wipe all this stuff. Yeah. Or, I mean, I guess maybe just near missing would be enough. Yeah, maybe. Just, just. Or enough to screw it up. Yeah. Yeah. But I love this whole shot when he's playing all the tapes. Right. As Jack checks more and more tapes, the camera floats around the room in circles. A similar scene happens in Coppola's 1974 film, The Conversation, where protagonist Harry Call, as played by Gene Hackman, awakens to learn that his secret recordings of an important incident have been stolen from his office. So they weren't erased in that when they were taken, but he's freaking out the same way when he realizes that all of his boxes are empty. The phone starts ringing and Jack ignores it until the receptionist enters to inform him that the police are calling. Jack asks if anyone's been here today and she admits that she let a guy in. When Jack starts shouting for more information, she says she doesn't like his tone and leaves. (laughs) The cop on the phone is Mackie, the guy he left his evidence with, and he's mad because the tape was blank. I'm surprised he even bothered listening to it, but I guess they needed to know what Jack had. When Jack explains that all of his tapes here have been erased the same way, Officer Mackey pokes fun at him, implying paranoia. Oh, oh, yeah, they, they erased your tapes. What are they going to be doing, trying to kill you next? You're fucking nuts. We get an overhead shot of Jack's office and tapes being thrown across the floor, all blank. Jack calls Sally and tells her that he's heading over. I was going to say, like, he keeps putting tapes onto more and more and more reels, like more yeah. reel to reels. So they're all playing together with different levels of static. They're or all just, just clicking. And, yeah. yeah. He drops the phone on the ground without even hanging it up and walks out of his office without closing the door. On his way out, Jack is intercepted in the IPI lobby by Frank Donahue, a local anchorman who wants to talk with Jack about the evidence that McRyan's tire was shot out. As they move through the IPI building back towards Jack's office, we see a poster on the right for Blood Beach, which we covered in Vintage Video episode 175. Jack wants to know where Frank Donahue heard about the tire getting shot out, but Donahue won't reveal his sources. Jack asks how Donahue can be sure that he didn't fake his evidence. Donahue seems to implicitly trust Jack, if only because the official story doesn't quite add up. Donahue offers Jack the opportunity to tell his story on the air to 8 million viewers and to punctuate his appearance by playing the tape live. Across town, we move to an apartment, I think Jack's, upstairs from a palm reader's office. Jack busts into the ceiling tile of his office to take the tape down again. Jack and Sally sit in a dark room and Jack's sync sound footage of the accident is being projected on a blanket mounted on the wall. Sally asks Jack what his next step will be and Jack says they'll have to work together. When Sally tries to pretend that she's not a part of this whole mission, Jack reveals that he knows about the work that she did for CARP and that she was enlisted to pose for salacious photos that would ruin McRyan's campaign. Sally tells him that she's going to leave town But Jack points out that they already left her to die once, and there's no reason they wouldn't try to track her down. For some reason, she believes Manny's story that it was an accident, and he didn't know the tire would get shot out. For a prostitute, Sally seems weirdly trusting of all the terrible men in her life. She thinks Manny was just trying to take pictures, and she thinks Jack has a romantic interest in her, when really he just wants a witness on his team. Sally sits down and admits that she's been working this job for a while, posing for blackmail photos with elected officials. She defends what she's doing by claiming that it never involved sex, and that the men she was framing deserved it because they picked her up with a wife at home. So, I guess she's not as much a prostitute as she is an escort, technically. Yeah, but, so she was never, um, 
like she never also intended these pictures to go public. She just wanted mm-hmm. the money from the person from, in the photos. Yeah. yeah. She says Manny got her a ticket to the Liberty Ball where she met McRyan and they quickly left together. Amazing that none of the other reporters have stumbled upon the detail that Carp had tickets to the governor's ball the night McRyan was killed. What or that McRyan left with a woman? Like, yeah. Right. From yeah. a public place. People should have noticed that. Maybe she left first and hid in the car. Maybe. All sorts of tricks. What? What do you know about Nothing. these tricks? <laughs> this is all news to me. He just I knows do about a lot of research for this episode. <laughs> he only knows about turning them. <laughs> what? Turn, Jack- turning tricks? No, I got that. Oh. You're a prostitute too now? <laughs> You both sides of this fence. <laughs> uh, you can't be a pimp and a prostitute, too. Jack asks who paid Manny for this whole operation, but Sally doesn't know and refuses to accept that Manny knew in advance that the tire would get shot out. Jack tells her that the next step is for her to find Carp and to steal back the original negative so they can make a clean print with his audio. Then they can play it on Donahue's show and everyone will know the truth. We cut back to Manny's apartment at the hotel and Sally is here with questions. Carp recites to her the official story and Sally points out that the tire didn't just blow out. It was shot out, and Carp wants to know who told her that. How do you know that? I know, I know, I just know. Now who was it? It was nobody. Worst liar ever. Oh, the guy who shot out the tire? It was nobody did it. Eventually, he admits that a politician heard about their divorce racket and offered him $6,000 to get McRyan out of the race. Sally is finally realizing that he's a scumbag because he told her before it was 3000 Carp concluded later that the politician's plan must have been to shoot out the tire so that Carp could get the footage of the governor and the girl together. Wasn't that the whole plan, to get footage yeah. of the governor and the girl together? Why would you guys be waiting at this bridge if the plan wasn't to stop the car somehow? Sally takes it hard because she feels directly responsible for the governor's death. Manny, we got him killed. Oh, hey, wait, wait, we? Hey, what do you mean we, huh? We didn't do nothing. I, I, I was in the woods, you were in the car, I didn't shoot out my tire, you didn't either. So, uh, so please, don't give me none of this, uh, this conscience shit, huh? But when Sally suggests taking the information to the authorities, Manny changes his tune. Are you crazy? We got him killed. Do you want to go to jail? Yeah, but, but I was in the car and you were in the woods. Uh, you think anybody is going to believe that? Carp tries to convince Sally that they can live comfortably off his footage for the rest of their lives. He tries to force himself on her, and she fights him off. He throws her on the bed, and finally she smashes a bottle of J&B whiskey over his head to knock him out. He lands in a sort of Christ-like pose on the bed, with his arms outstretched and his legs crossed, and she snatches the accident film strip out of Carp's projector on her way out. They screen the full-quality picture at Jack's apartment, and he is ecstatic. You can clearly see the flash on the hillside behind the car with the sound of the shot. Jack calls Donahue right away. Donahue offers to call him back on a secure line in 20 minutes, and we see Jack rushing out the door with a projector. While we follow him along the sidewalk, we hear the voice of Burke calling a tip line to confess to the murder of the woman under the billboard. He is affecting a disturbed speaking pattern to sell that he is a troubled, uncontrollable psychopath. She, she wanted me to do it. She asked for it. <laughs> Make me for the bitch. I thought for sure he was going to say that my name is Jack Terry. Oh, sure, yeah. I was like, yeah, that would just be... He's pinned it on him, yeah. icing on the cake. When the cops ask him for information about himself, he hangs up. Yeah, he could, like, put the ice pick in his truck or something like yeah. that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Really fuck him over. Later, on a call with Jack, Donahue expresses the importance of Jack's in-person testimony that this reel is exactly what he heard that night. 
Donahue suggests bringing Sally in to corroborate, but Jack says she doesn't want to be involved. After that call, Jack calls Sally to basically repeat the entire scope of their conversation, but for this second call, we float downstairs in Jack's building to see that Burke has patched himself into Jack's phone line and is listening in on the whole conversation. Well, yeah, I mean, sometimes he just leaves a tape recorder and yeah. he plays back the tape later, but I was just like, wait, how long has, how long has it been since you checked this tape? Yeah should be actively listening for this yeah. jack pressures sally to join him on the broadcast since they will be untouchable once it's all aired she agrees to at least think about it we cut to jack watching a news broadcast where detective Mackey and his commission confirm that the governor's death was the result of a freak accident the broadcast transitions to a story about a recent murder bullshit also in the news today is the bizarre sex killing of mary robert a 22 year old receptionist from the center city area her body was found at 10 a.m. in the Reading Terminal Excavation Site after police received a tip from an anonymous caller. We cut back to Donahue's office, and he's trying to call Jack, but Burke has rerouted the line to a busy signal. The tail end of the news broadcast mentions that the dead woman was stabbed in the stomach and groin multiple times in the shape of the Liberty Bell. That's <laughs> overdoing it a little bit, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Over at Sally's apartment, she gets a call from someone claiming to be Donahue, but we can hear that it's Burke calling. We established earlier that Sally doesn't watch the news, so she doesn't know what Donahue should sound like. Sally heads over to Jack's and lets him know about the bad phone line. Sally tells him that she's made arrangements to meet with Donahue and to hand over the tape herself, and Jack is very confused by all the sudden changes to the plan, but never bothers reaching out to Donahue yeah. for clarification uh, because the plot demands that they take the least likely actions moving forward. I was so mad by this. Why doesn't he just go with her? Yeah. Well, Your yeah. phone works here. Call him right now. The incoming line is blocked, but you can call out. You're getting a dial tone. Right. Call right. Donahue and say, what's up now? You you want her to give you the tape? And then he says, what? No, I couldn't reach you. I haven't reached you all day. Right. Or on top of that, at least, even if you're not going to do that, go as a pair. Right. Why would he be upset with you going as a pair? Instead of simply going with her to deliver the tape, Jack decides he's going to put a mic on Sally to, quote, cover all their bases. I don't get it. I think this whole third act sequence is very intense and cinematic, but logically, the plan does not hold water. He's just going to listen to Sally hand the tape over to Donahue from a distance. This way, if he disappears with the film, you can't pretend he didn't take it because I got him on tape. What use would that be? It doesn't prove what's on the film. Yeah. In court, when you're alleging that someone shot out the tire, you can't play a clip of Donahue saying, Thanks for this evidence for the jury and pretend that it proves anything. And what's to stop Donahue from erasing the tape and saying you gave him a blank tape like everyone else has done? At the last minute, Jack decides to make a duplicate of the audio in case Donahue's plan is just to erase everything. And Sally asks why he doesn't duplicate the film too, but Jack says, there's no time. But what is the ticking clock here? Call Donahue back and say, we'll meet you tomorrow. Yeah. We need a backup of everything. This is very yeah. important. Yeah. And 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 he does have another film, doesn't he? He no. has his crappy he has version his, of it. He has yeah. his homemade version. Right. This is the this is the high quality version that'll like, you know, hold up when scrutinized. Right, right. But his crappy version is still a version. Right. He could also go down and buy the magazine again and just yeah. point to the frame with a flash on it and say, This is where the gunshot happens yeah. in my audio. We cut to a train station where Burke is reading the Philadelphia Daily News and specifically a headline about the Liberty Bell Strangler. He overhears a very Nancy Allen looking prostitute hitting on a nearby sailor. So, uh, say so you got about 60 minutes and about $60? Oh no, did I say that? 
Yeah, uh, you did say that. No, I think I've uh, about 20 minutes and about uh, $20 what I've got. Gee, it's too bad you don't have about 40 minutes and about $40. Yeah, that's too bad. That's really too bad. Yeah, that's too bad. While he listens to them haggle, Burke starts to fiddle with a retractable garrote wire in his watch, which is the first chance we get to see what's making this zipping and clicking mm-hmm. sound we've been hearing throughout the film. Also, I mean, at those prices, I mean, does it really matter? No, because like, this guy's not going to last five minutes. <laughs> it's all irrelevant. She's just setting a price. They're, the time is irrelevant. She's not going to go blow him for an hour. <laughs> The woman sets a minimum deal to 30 minutes for $30, and they agree to meet in a nearby phone booth. Burke follows the woman to the phones while the sailor bugs his friends for spare cash. The sailor pretends to take a call in one of the payphones while the prostitute waits in the opaque bottom half of the booth. The man lasts less than a minute before finishing, and as revenge for his premature ejaculation, only offers her 10 bucks, which, come on ladies, payment up front, always. (laughs) The sailor leaves and the lady curses in her phone booth until she notices Burke a few phones down, tapping on the glass and pressing a $50 bill to the window as if to reserve her services. She gestures that she'll be back in five minutes and heads to the station restroom to brush her teeth between Johns. Burke follows her to the restroom and ominously puts on leather gloves along the way. He enters the bathroom stall beside the sink she's using, which the sink is in the bathroom stall? I thought that was interesting. Or is he in a stall and she's He's just, in a stall and she's in a stall. She's They're in both a stall? in stalls, but her stall has a toilet and a sink. Well, it's a, it's a train station, so mm-hmm. they might have facilities Maybe. that yeah. you know people can refresh themselves. Um, what I think is weird, though, is was his plan, like he didn't plan for her to go to the bathroom in between. So was he just going to kill her in the booth? Probably, yeah. I mean, he's got, yeah, he's got the, the garrote in his watch. He can do it any time. Yeah, it just seems more public. Yeah, that's true. But no one... I guess if she's on the ground, nobody's going to see that. He enters the bathroom stall beside the sink she's using. He pulls the garrote wire and his watch taut and leans over the dividing wall to catch her under the chin with it and lift her off the ground, choking her to death with the wire. Under the stall, we can see her legs kicking wildly. Outside the station, we see Jack and Sally pull up and park in the Jeep. Sally is already wired, and Jack tells her that if she ever needs him, to call him but doesn't think to mention that she shouldn't just get on a fucking train with Donahue and leave the area. I still don't understand why he's waiting out here when he's already spoken with Donahue and met him in person. And how did Burke know they wouldn't come together? Couldn't he still be recording the handoff if he was standing next to her? From the second-story windows of the station, Burke watches Sally enter and then wait for him across the lobby of the building. I guess this is where he would realize that she wasn't alone and would just abort the mission, maybe? Oh, maybe. But either way, I think Jack should have just been in this lobby somewhere. Sure. Has Lithgow ever seen Jack? I'm sure he must have some idea of what he looks like. Maybe. Sally starts chatting up a storm with Jack over the microphone about things they could do in New York together sometime, and she's still talking when Burke walks up posing as Donahue. So he probably knows from the start that he's being recorded, because she's not just talking to herself here. But also, Jack should know immediately. And I think he does. As soon as he as he hears the voice, he can hear that it's not Donahue, and he does take a couple beats to follow her into the station on foot. But I don't know why he wasn't in there the whole time. Was it necessary to hide from Donahue for some reason I'm forgetting? Like, Donahue wouldn't even be upset if he was like, hey, we're recording this interaction as I hand this off to you because we want proof that we gave you this tape. And he'd be like, great, sounds wonderful. I really want to air this evidence on television. 
we're on the same team. Yeah, this benefits us both. It's not like he's a crime boss who's going to kill you for recording it. He's a he's a news anchor. He's famous. You've seen him on TV. Because we've established that Sally is a bit of a dummy, she makes no effort to give Jack clues to follow her. The two rush off toward the trains. Where's Jack? Uh, oh, he's at home, resting. Uh, I know what the pressure can do to you. Gee, which train are we taking? I don't know yet. So even Burke expected him to come with her. How was this supposed to pan out if that happened? Sally would recognize the voice as Donahue, who called her earlier, but Burke would have to tell Jack that he was just someone else from the news office and definitely wasn't Donahue because you know what Donahue looks like. Right. Without any help from Sally, Jack hears them push through the turnstiles into the subway. They get to a platform and slowly cross it while Jack frantically races through the station. He hears the garrote wire being pulled and telepathically begs Sally for some kind of clue as to where they are. Finally, she reads a sign out loud to help Jack, but it seems completely coincidental. Franklin Bridge Express, huh? Jack gets to the platform too late to save her. He doubles back to the Jeep, hoping to meet the train at the next station. On the way, he drives through a blocked street and manages to escape dozens of police and firefighters in the road. When Jack takes the Jeep up some marble steps towards City Hall, a mounted policeman follows him on a horse and quickly slips and lands hard on its side oh, across the marble yeah. floor. Th- th- that that injury to a horse it's awful it's so bad very easily break this horse's legs doing that well he's he's driving through a parade right but i mean he's not technically doing that yet okay but he's about to be well he's he went through the barricade that's blocking off the street for the parade which is it's already pretty upsetting yeah he's not even driving on a road yeah he drove up steps but i I love the suspension on this jeep actually because when he comes off the top of the steps it just like flies up and the bounces it just looks really comfortable (laughs) <laughs> it's like uh urban off-roading i could run over 50 people and never know it yeah jack drives through a pair of tunnels to come out the other side of the city hall property where he drives full speed through the parade with performers diving out of the way at the last possible moment eventually the crowd is too thick to drive through and jack swerves to the right crashing through a storefront labeled liberty or death with mannequins hanging in nooses what possible store would have this display <laughs> Yeah, this uh, driving through the parade thing is... It's very disturbing. Well, it's very upsetting, especially with, you know, recent yeah. events. Uh, it's just, it's it's really hard to watch. Yeah. Nearby pedestrians find Jack unconscious at the wheel. Hours later, Burke and Sally walk along the river. Back at the parade site, Jack wakes up in the back of an ambulance, and the mic is somehow still running. Sally hands the film reel to Burke, who tapes the boxes of audio and picture together real tight and then tosses them into the river. Sally is so incredibly dumb that she still doesn't realize that she's dealing with a bad guy. What did you do that for? Jack's gonna kill you. Burke tugs on his gloves and throws his arms around Sally to drag her away. He tells her not to scream or he will kill her while he looks for a place to obviously kill her anyway, and Sally agrees not to make a sound for a while. Jack hops out of the ambulance and tears off all his bandages and just runs in a random direction hoping that Sally and Burke are that way. Yeah, like, this was this was very annoying. How does he know where to go? It's nighttime now. They could have gone anywhere. And he doesn't know how much time has passed. He doesn't know where they ended up. Like Right now, he can hear her microphone, so he knows that they're near the fireworks display. That's all he knows. I guess. I mean, and, and presumably, the Franklin Bridge Express put them out near the Franklin Bridge. But again, that was at least an hour ago, because it yeah. was daytime when he crashed and nighttime when he woke up. But there's also 100,000 other people out here. So the chances of him finding them in this crowd are slim to none. 
By complete chance, Jack is shoving through the dense crowd directly toward Sally and Burke. Burke takes Sally to the top floor of the Port of History building and throws her on the ground. She manages to punch him off of her and rushes to the railing beside them to scream to the crowd below. Everyone is distracted by the fireworks and only Jack is facing the Liberty Bell, which it turns out they are ringing during the celebration, though maybe this is the replica bell that they mentioned on the broadcast earlier. Jack sees the screaming Sally silhouetted against an enormous American flag just as Burke drags her back down to the ground. Jack pushes through the crowd frantically on his way to Sally and gets there just as Burke is raising the ice pick to stab her in the chest. He grabs Burke's arm and forces the man to stab himself in the chest repeatedly until he is dead, but then, when Jack drops Burke to the ground, he notices the familiar line across Sally's neck of a successful strangulation, obviously reminding him of the last time he wired somebody for sound and they were, quote, left hanging. He cradles her body in the flashing blue and red glow of the fireworks display under somber piano score. I think this music in particular shows up again in Death Proof. So when he's holding her, it's actually a, a pretty great shot. I was I was pretty impressed by by how good it looks because they have the two of them. The camera is circling around the two of them, sort of you know him holding her. Yeah. Um, but it's angled up in a way that you're watching the fireworks that's ha- happening behind him. But they're but, still lighting their faces with the glows. Yeah, but it, like that had to be a composite shot, right? Yeah. I think it's blue screen. I think it is blue screen. It looks like there's edges in their hair. And there's stuff a little like that. bit of edges though, but I'm actually impressed about how good it looks yeah. being a blue screen. Like it's actually the pretty fact impressive. that I can't tell means they did a good job. Yeah, and but she and it's she's possible got, it's it's authentic. But she's got wispy hair and stuff, yeah. and I'm just like, this actually looks pretty damn good. Yeah. We cut to the next day, and Jack sits on a bench in a snowy park listening to the recording that ended in Sally's death. We dissolve to a news broadcast detailing the last two victims of the Liberty Bell Strangler, and disturbingly, the graphic being displayed on screen for the story is two gloved hands holding a wire and a connect-the-dots Liberty Bell meant to resemble the wounds that Burke was stabbing into the victims. Ugh. It seems tasteless. The police made the determination that Sally killed Burke in self-defense before dying, meaning that Jack must have left the scene of the crime, like he just walked away after he held her there. But it doesn't matter. He's already going to go to jail for driving his car through a parade. That's true. Yeah. Why is he free the next day? Yeah. The camera floats away from the TV and across a floor covered in unspooled magnetic tape to Jack playing Sally's last desperate cries for his help through the dubbing machine. Right as the recording reaches her final scream, we hear it dubbed over the climactic shower stabbing of co-ed frenzy. Jack has spliced the death screams of Sally into his schlocky horror film, though in his defense, it's the only sound he has left. Why would you do that? Because he has a job to do. and This is the only sound that he needed. Nope. The director loves it, but Jack, sweating profusely, is so disturbed he has to cover his ears in the screening room. A scream! The end. So dark. It's so dark. I was not expecting this. I was not expecting her to die. I was not expecting to cut the scream in. Yeah, I definitely just busted up laughing when they cut to the screening room of her scream over the end of the movie because it's like, holy shit, that's so crazy dark. And obviously the studio 
wanted to lighten up the ending of the story and there was i think pretty big discussions about whether or not she would survive the film or not yeah and uh they ultimately landed on no because that's not what this movie's about i mean this obviously is so much more impactful right Uh, from the perspective of looking back today it is but at the time people were very disappointed in theaters and word of mouth killed this thing by the second weekend because they were so disappointed that that's how it ended man I mean, yeah, I guess. I mean, nowadays I would be like, holy shit, that was awesome. <laughs> but also they just came out of like the 70s where every movie ended on a crazy downer. Like, yeah. I don't understand why they didn't see this coming, first of all. Or second of <laughs> all, accept that this is the correct way to end the film. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, I guess I guess the bad guy is dead. So I mean, one of them is. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody yeah. paid him to do what he did. Did they? I don't think he got paid in the. I, 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 to me, like your job is payment on completion. I don't think and, so. And the job is the reward itself. Yeah. <laughs> the job is the people we shot along the way. <laughs> it's like do what you love, and you never work a day in your life. That's right. <laughs> yeah, um, this is a great movie. I really like it. There's stuff in the third act that doesn't really make sense logically. There's no reason that he wouldn't have gone with her to deliver this tape if that was the plan. Yeah. I feel like they could have spent more time setting this up and making it make sense that she had to do this alone. Yeah, I mean, it has a co- it has a couple of those flaws, but honestly, none of those things ruin it for me. No, I still I, I still really liked this movie. And this whole last moment is so intense under the fireworks and everything. Uh, I I just think it works on every level. It's really terrifying. I definitely think the movie was very well put together. And it's a thumbs up. I don't yeah, I yeah. don't want to say like I'm going into this like you know, give it a thumbs down. No, it's a thumbs up. But it really disturbed me and it upset me and I was like I don't know that if I'm ever gonna. Wa- I don't know if I'm ever gonna watch this movie <laughs> yeah, again. Yeah, it's gonna affect your letterbox listing, but it's yeah. definitely a thumbs up. Yeah. Um, also, this is a total side note. I absolutely hate the poster. What yeah, poster? I That's hate it. The poster is like a stretched Travolta face. It's kind of like the Shining poster last year yeah. with the stretched Jack Nicholson face, and it's like, why? Oh, that's a weird poster. Yeah. I'm looking it up now. That's. Well, and then I looked for more Google images and I just got a bunch of ladies who have nice, you know, wavy, dried hair. So yeah. you have to write blowout movie to know. Or 1981 <laughs> helps. Yeah, that's a weird poster. I, yeah. I don't get it. I mean, it, it, it makes it seem like it's a horror film. Right. I mean, there's elements of horror in it, but it's yeah. mostly a thriller. But like, you know, put some kind of sound or, I mean, I don't know. Because the tagline murder has a sound of all its own and is just like, he, but he's screaming. Is that the sound? Oh, there's some other posters on here. This one's interesting. It's just her. It's the woman's uh, feet dangling in the bathroom with one shoe off with a toothbrush on the ground, <laughs> which is funny because I, I, I really liked that scene where he's about to strangle the woman in the bathroom because he has to keep waiting for her to stop brushing her teeth so he can get the wire around yeah. her neck. And yeah. it's just, it's, it's really suspenseful. Yeah. <laughs> You're like, is he going to get to do it or no? <laughs> Rooting for the killer. The Phantom of the Opera, keep your hand at the level of your eye. What are we thinking letterboxed? I have it at 19. So it's pretty high up there. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's below for your eyes only and above Sphinx. Right. I really liked Sphinx. <laughs> it's such a stupid sure. movie, and I love it. I actually have it at um, number nine out of uh, oh wow ninety five ninety five yeah yeah um, it's below Outland and above uh, Escape from New York. All right, cool. Yeah, I also have it above Escape from New York. 
Uh, I have to say, this is, should be the official poster for Blowout. Clearly gets the whole movie across. What is that, the romantic comedy <laughs> version of it? Yeah, it's literally <laughs> just Nancy Allen with her arms wrapped around John Travolta. <laughs> smiling into camera like a portrait yeah it looks like it, it has to be like a production like yeah like here's the cast of of blowout um i actually have it in 11th which is just under excalibur and just above escape from new york for me our writer director here was brian de palma this is our first director to get to three titles i think after home movies and dress to kill last season he's also the director of body double untouchable scarface mission impossible phantom of the paradise carrie mission to mars <laughs> forgot about mission to mars <laughs> and bonfire of the vanities the other writing credit was obviously uncredited from bill macy jr who also wrote road ends in 97 starring dennis hopper peter coyote and chris sarandon the music here was from pino Donaggio, a regular collaborator of de palma's previously on home movies and dress to kill and later body double parts of his score from this film were reused in tarantino's death proof because apparently this is Quentin Tarantino's favorite De Palma flick. Donaggio also scored The Howling and The Fan earlier this season. Cinematographer Vilmo Sigmund, before this he'd lit Satan's Sadists, Five Bloody Graves, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, Deliverance, The Long Goodbye, Close Encounters, among others. Last year, he DP'd Heaven's Gate, which received my re-Oscar. The dailies for the parade shoot were carelessly left in a van in a Dunkin' Donuts parking lot, which was stolen. And the entire scene had to be reshot at wow. a cost of $750,000. Oh, wow. No. It was the most expensive sequence of the film, and they had to do it twice. Oh, no. The original shoot utilized more than 1,000 extras. Gotta fire that PA. Yeah. 25 stunt drivers and a custom helicopter rig. The reshoots made use of only 500 extras. Man, so someone has someone has a film? Maybe. Maybe it's still out there, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I remember talking to somebody that said something similar that they were a film runner and you know they learned their lesson because they left a bag of film in the back of their car once and they ran in to like get something at a convenience store and they came back and like the bag well the bag was stolen out of the back of their car well this one the whole van got stolen i know they might not have even known they had film in it but like when i was a pa this was the story i got told because they're like you don't leave media in the car period ever no questions asked you carry like you got to go into the bathroom you carry that film in with you (laughs) yeah i remember they made a huge deal about it even at like when we were at pie town taking hdsrs of house hunters episodes yeah it's like this is extremely important this needs to go directly to fedex you cannot stop stop for gas on the way there if you run out of gas you get out and you walk carrying this box <laughs> it's like you can just make this tape over again right here Doesn't well matter. that case you can but like when you're running actual film print that's right. like that is that is the the negative from that day dailies you know like but we also had very strict ndas we couldn't spoil which house they went with that's not true <laughs> they went with the one they already owned spoiler alert they bought it first (laughs) they picked out three houses to walk through like every episode of house hunters editor paul hirsch is a regular de palma collaborator for hi mom sisters phantom of the paradise and carrie before this he also cut star wars and empire creep show footloose ferris bueller he also took home an oscar for star wars and his most recent credit was for the tom cruise mummy john travolta played jack They first considered Al Pacino for the role, because the script called for an older actor. Travolta's first film was The Devil's Reign, 
He obviously worked with De Palma previously on Carrie, but he was best known at the time for his TV work on Welcome Back, Cotter, and for back-to-back blockbusters Saturday Night Fever and Grease. We saw him last year in Urban Cowboy. Tarantino cast him in Pulp Fiction specifically because of his performance in this film. The combo of Pulp Fiction and the Look Who's Talking films basically restarted his career in the 90s. Nancy Allen played Sally. The Sally role was also meant for an older actress, and those considered included Julie Christie, Natalie Wood, Stella Stevens, and Diane Cannon. Despite being married to the director, De Palma, Nancy was not considered until she was pitched specifically by Travolta, who had previously starred alongside her in De Palma's Carrie. They were boyfriend and girlfriend in that film. At least one studio executive sincerely pitched Olivia Newton-John if previous Travolta co-stars were fair game, but the suggestion was shot down. I think ONJ might have been great here, but the two of them together brings weird baggage to the story. Yeah. Like right after Grease. Nancy Allen previously appeared with Travolta and Carrie. She was also Donna Stratton in 1941. She played a different clueless prostitute character in our previous De Palma film, Dressed to Kill, but I think her best work is as Anne Lewis in the RoboCop film series. John Lithgow played Burke. Burke is based loosely on G. Gordon Liddy, one of the lead participants in the Watergate break-in, and who made an actual appearance as an evil henchman in MacGyver episode Collision Course. He also serves as one of Fletch's pseudonyms in the first film. Name's Liddy. Gordon Liddy. Gord, uh, take a look at the seventh Fetzer valve, will you? I think it's been sticking. Probably the humidity. Lithgow was previously Lucas Sargent in All That Jazz, and we'll see him next season in I'm Dancing As Fast As I Can and The World According to Garp. My generation probably know him best as either Lord Farquaad from Shrek or Dr. Dick Solomon from Third Rock from the Sun. He also basically reprised this role as one of the best villains of the Showtime series Dexter, the Trinity Killer. Uh, I always, uh, you know, because... Yeah, Third Rock from the Sun, obviously, is like a big thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in my mind, I always go to um, the Twilight Zone movie. Oh, okay. And his, his portrayal. He, was the, he took over the, the Shatner, Shatner role. Yeah. yeah. And he is, because uh, 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 Miller, who directed that that segment. George uh, Miller. Yeah. No, not Frank Miller. I almost said, <laughs> Frank, I almost said Frank Miller. Um uh, it's such an amazing segment. It's yeah. My, it's, it's really the, when I want to watch the Twilight Zone movie, it's really the only segment that I want to and watch. And doesn't he do the eye popping thing again? Oh yeah. It's yeah. so nuts. I've, I've, I've frozen the frame on it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so ridiculously crazy. Was he also the bad guy in Cliffhanger? Yes. Yeah. Because okay, for some reason, I always think that was uh, Kurtwood Smith, but it's because I'm going to RoboCop in my head. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he's affecting a weird British accent in that film. Oh, weird. Dennis Franz played Manny Carp. We saw him as a detective in the previous De Palma review of Dress to Kill. He's also Carmine Lorenzo in Die Hard 2, but he's probably best known as Detective Andy Sipowicz on NYPD Blue, wherein he earned the glorious distinction of playing the first naked ass on primetime network television. John Aquino played Detective Mackey. He was Finley in Fort Apache the Bronx earlier this season. Deborah Everton played Hooker. Her only acting credit, she has mostly costume design credits on titles like The Abyss, Highlander 2, Blank Check, The Craft, and Spy Kids. J. Patrick McNamara played the detective at the hospital. That's the one who was giving him a hard time. He plays Private Dubois in 1941. He was project leader in Close Encounters. But most importantly, he's Mr. Preston, father of Bill S. Preston Esquire (laughs) in the Bill and Ted films. Missy Cleveland played co-ed lover. I think, isn't, uh, 
Bill's dad married to a Missy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's funny. And the next name in the credits is Missy Cleveland, who played a co-ed lover. I think that's the woman who's actually having sex on the ground. She was the April 79 Playboy Playmate. And in our previous De Palma film, Dressed to Kill, we saw the penthouse pet of the year, doubling Angie Dickinson in the shower scene. Roger Wilson played co-ed lover, another co-ed lover. He was Mickey in Porky's and Porky's 2. Cindy Mannion played dancing co-ed. She's Julie in The Toxic Avenger. Maurice Copeland played Jack Manners, that's the president's man, who I think is responsible for everything that happens in the film. We just saw him as Uncle Peter in Arthur a few weeks back, the one who's reprimanding him at the restaurant before he sits down with his prostitute. Dick McGarvin played TV newscaster. He was also an interviewer in The Incredible Shrinking Woman, and he's back later this season as a tour bus driver in Mommy Dearest. He also provides announcer voices in Fletch Lives and Scrooged, where I think he is the contracted voice of the IBC promos. You'll love it. Yeah, exactly. Robin Sherwood played Betty. She was Carol Kersey, the daughter of Charlie Bronson's Paul Kersey in Death Wish 2, and she was also Eileen in Tourist Trap. The last credit I have is for Dave Roberts, who plays an anchorman, and he was a longtime Philadelphia weatherman and also the father of actor David Boreanaz from Bones and Angel. I think that's everything for Blowout. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd, where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year, and we can also be found at VintageVideoPodcasts.com. We also have a Discord. Join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe to the show there. <laughs> and hit the little bell so that I think when you hit the bell... Then when we post new episodes, it'll be like, The crack episode, will get bigger. The crack will get bigger. <laughs> and then every time a bell rings, a prostitute gets stabbed to death. What's that sound? We got one! That's right. It's a new patron, Helen Barletto. As a $5 patron of the show, Helen now has access to 27 full-size 70s reviews and 32 minisodes from 1980 and a hand in choosing next month's film. For May of 1972... $5 patrons are choosing between the following eight titles. A Bay of Blood, a.k.a. Bloodbath, possibly a film from the fictional Independence Pictures Incorporated from this <laughs> film. Considered by many to be the birth of the modern slasher film, Mario Bavo's giallo classic about a string of murders in the wake of a countess's alleged suicide. Blood from the Mummy's Tomb, the first film adaptation of Bram Stoker's The Jewel of the Seven Stars. Do you recall the second adaptation? We've already covered it on the show. Is it uh, The Awakening? It is The Awakening, about an archaeologist dead set on resurrecting the ancient Egyptian queen who comes with a curse. Chato's Land, Michael Winner's Technicolor Western starring Charles Bronson and Jack Palance about a half-native man who shoots a sheriff in self-defense and is pursued by a group of Confederate soldiers. It sounds a little bit like Death Hunt to me. Yeah. I guess yeah. Palance is the Lee Marvin in this one. I don't need to watch that one. Pick something else, guys. <laughs> <laughs> The Other, Robert Mulligan's psychological horror film about a pair of potentially murderous identical twins set on a farm in the 1930s, starring Uta Hagen and featuring an early turn from John Ritter. Play It Again, Sam, Woody Allen comedy based on his play of the same name about a divorced film critic who speaks to an imaginary friend that resembles Humphrey Bogart's Rick from Casablanca. Do you recall Rick's last name? Uh Eric Binford asked this question in Fade to Black, mm -hmm. but never actually answered it. Nope. It's Blaine. That's not a name. It's, it's a, a major, major appliance. appliance. 
And do you guys recall when we last saw played against Sam parodied specifically? Fade to black? No. <laughs> Cabo Blanco? No. Loose shoes. Uh, do you remember there was a sketch no, where I don't remember. the guy was talking to someone for love advice and he thought that he was, I think he was Clark Gable though, instead of being Humphrey Bogart. I'll put a clip here. Yeah. So who is this you're talking about? You, Clark Gable. I'm not Clark Gable. You're not? The hell no. God, are you a shit? Because Loose Shoes needs more attention. Definitely. The next title is The Rats Are Coming. The Werewolves Are Here. <laughs> wow. Andy <laughs> Milligan's horror film about the daughter of a family of werewolves bringing about an end to the family curse. Tower of Evil. Jim O'Connelly's horror mystery about a group of archaeologists beset by a series of bizarre murders while exploring an ancient dig site. And finally, ZPG, or Zero Population Growth, Michael Campus's sci-fi thriller about a family in the future defying an Earth-wide pregnancy ban, starring Oliver Reed and Geraldine Chaplin. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Each of which will be celebrating their 50th anniversaries this May. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Coming At Ya, which IMDb describes like so. Tragedy strikes as two ruthless brothers kidnap a bride during her wedding. Hurt and angry, H.H. begins his quest to find the love he lost and take vengeance upon the wicked. Coming at ya. This is the first 3D film of the 80s, guys, and we watched it in 3D, so get ready. We leave you now with the trailer for Coming at ya. I saw God-fearing people stripped of their young women and struck down by millions of the devil. Evil men, led by two evil brothers. What did they do with the women? ever want to see that scumbag brother of yours again you do exactly what i say you don't have to be afraid because i'm going to do everything i can to get you out of here
Hey, this is David from the Piecing It Together podcast, a podcast about movies and the movies that inspire them. For over four years each week, a guest and I take a look at a new movie through the lens of what other movies we think were either an influence or connect in some other way. It's a fun, unique way to discuss films that leads to a great list of other movies to check out that either explore the same themes and ideas or maybe utilize similar filmmaking techniques. Including special episodes in our side series that twist the format, we've done over 200 episodes, so there's bound to be one on a film you've been thinking about and want to dig deeper into. So check us out on all the major podcasting apps and at piecingpod.com.